0: Well, thank you, Norm. Uh, I don't remember you that well, but uh, say <laughs> it's good to be here. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to take, uh, give some credit to some people, Don for getting me up here and Bill for looking after me. And, uh, I don't know. I've been here since about noon uh, Friday and uh, been doing what they told me to do. And, you know, after a while, you get, well, you get up here and get it over with, and uh, here I am. And, uh, and a lot of you are wondering how I feel. Uh, I'll tell you how I feel. Uh, it's a story that I've told many times, and I'm going to tell it again. It seems many years ago, back in my part of the country, I was staying a they had one of these long-winded speakers. <clears throat> the first hour, he talked about the Twelve Steps. The second hour, he got into Twelve Traditions. In the third hour, he got into the three legacies, and people began to leave, and they will leave. I found it out one night, and (laughs) and lo and behold, everybody left but one man kept sitting on the front row, and so the speaker got concerned. He wound up his talk, ran down from the podium, grabbed the man by the hand, and said, I want to ask you one question. Everybody left but you. Why'd you stay? And he said, hell, I'm the next speaker. Well... (laughs) You can kind of understand how I feel. Uh, but it's good to be here, and it's good to see old friends. I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Dave Cabotty. In my part of the country, where I came from, and uh, where I came to the alcoholics, and I'm going to give you a sobriety date. It didn't come from Texas. You know, in Texas, if you don't give you sobriety date, by God, they'll shoot you right at the podium. <laughs> but uh, every time I talk about sobriety dates, I, talk, I think of an old-timer in my—well, he was from way, East Texas. What I call the circuit riders— uh, you know, I'm not, I've been in the program for a while, but the old-timers were the people that were here before I that traveled all over the country talking and going to these conventions. And one of, the, one of these was a fellow named Burton Crawford. Burton was from Kilgore, Texas. Burton's been dead for years, but... Burton would get to the podium, and he'd say, My name's Burton Crawford, and I've been sober ever since I can remember. Well, when you think about it, that applies to all of us. <laughs> We've been it been so very essential to remember, but by God's grace and because this program worked for me, through the help of some understanding sponsors who have led me with a kind but firm hand and through the love of, a, of my former wife, who died some time ago, and then through the love of my present wife uh, and a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or any tablet since the day I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was September the 12th, 1957. And for this, I'm very grateful. Uh, I give my sobriety a date for two reasons like I, I came in the Alcoholics Anonymous in the old Central Group in Roanoke, Virginia and uh, the second meeting I ever went to in an Alcoholics Anonymous was a discussion meeting and they had 13 or 14 wicker chairs sitting in a circle and I was no different from anybody else that goes out of the first discussion meeting I began to wonder what I was going to say when it got to me and it finally got to me And the man who had become my first sponsor spoke up and told me what to do. He said, give your name and your sobriety date, that's all you're qualified to do. As a matter of fact, after the meeting he explained to me that's all I was going to be able to do for quite some time, (laughs) to give my name and the sobriety date. And the second reason, in the old center group, they had a saying that if you remember that group, you got behind that podium, if you didn't give your sobriety date, you usually didn't have one. So that's the reason I do it. I. I've received a lot of benefits from this program, just like you, benefits that I call marginal benefits, such as peace of mind, some security, and a lot of happiness. But the basic benefit that I've received from this program is my sanity, my sanity. And today as a sane alcoholic, I find I don't have to run anymore, I don't have to cheat or steal anymore, and most important of all, I don't have to sober up anymore. And I didn't know that was the name of the game when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous, sobriety. I don't have to sober up anymore. And that's one of the greatest things i learned in this program. Now, when I came here, I, uh, I didn't know where I was when I got here, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. Uh, I didn't know anything about sobriety. If I did, I probably wouldn't have never gone. But my uh, drinking started when I was 16 years of age. Uh, as I look back now, in its hindsight, uh, I, I'm of the firm belief my father was an alcoholic. He never got to Alcoholics Anonymous. He died an alcoholic death. Uh, it led to a divorce in my home when I was 12 years of age. And my mother took me and clothed me and raised me with my two sisters and uh, got a good education. I had about everything I needed growing up, more than I needed. I was one of these kids that my mother loved me to death, if you know what I mean. And the first time I... I remember promising my mother that I'll never be like him. i would never be like him. There was never any physical abuse, but I remember the verbal abuse at night, the conversations. And I just said I'll never be like him. And sure enough, I went off to school, uh, to college, and this was when World War II was just over, and the fellows had just come back from a lot older than I. And, and these fellows... Uh, I've always said that if you're in an environment before Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll adjust to that environment. And if you're in different environments in sobriety, you'll become a part of that environment. And that's what happened to me. I, I was around them long enough that I started doing what the big boys were doing. And uh, I, uh, I enjoyed it for a while. Uh, had some trouble in the beginning getting it down. You know, we work at it. I, uh, I used to hear them talk about the pleasure that comes from drinking. Didn't know what to un- I didn't understand that. And one night I asked one of the fellows, uh, I said, "When does the pleasure come that you speak of?" And he said, "Dave, if you remember, there's a little pause in between from the time you take the drink and when you throw up. That's the pleasure." Well, <laughs> I went on through school, and and I didn't know what a hangover was. I drank on weekends and parties, and uh, but I started doing strange things. And I studied engineering in college, but because of my basketball ability, I was off the job coaching high school basketball when I finished school, and. Uh, And like I was telling somebody yesterday, I don't know, I guess it was alcoholic behavior then, the glory, that I guess, that came with it. I started coaching high school basketball when I was 20 years of age down in eastern North Carolina. Fell up, in the coaching profession, went to a much larger school after two years, and this is where my drinking began to multiply. And at that time, I was just drinking on weekends and meeting some of my schoolmates uh, where I'd been in school. We'd have these weekend parties. Well, there was knock down and drag out you know what I mean sometimes I'd get back on Monday sometime Tuesday and uh, if you're a school teacher or a high school coach you know they expect you there on Monday morning It wasn't long before I started drinking early in the morning and this is my third year at this particular school uh, I got to the point that I had to have alcohol in my system early in the morning it wasn't long before I found friends that I could drink with I was uh, Came acquainted with school board members that drank. And that gave me a place to go about every night. And I guess this was my social drinking. I don't know. But my, I'm one of these that I, I didn't drink but for 16 years. And from the time I took my first drink until I took my last, it was a rapid progression. And everything that happened to me happened fast, and I thank God for it because I got to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 29 years of age. I, uh, this particular school, I finally got in trouble there with calling my drinking, Uh, you know the alcoholic says in our book, you know, that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Well, the alcoholic is cunning and baffling. And uh, I can remember, you know, when they called me in for the first time to talk to me about my drinking, uh, the principal of the school, who was a good friend of mine, uh, I denied it and resented it and uh, and went back, uh, you know, I had to do something to get them off my back. And so what do you do? The alcoholic diverts their attention, so I decided I'd get married. Met a girl in the neighborhood I'd known about two weeks, and we got married. Of course, I gave him something to talk about, and it was a drunken marriage. It really was. She didn't have any idea of my drinking, and it lasted for a year and a half. Now, it got to the point that uh, this, is, this is the irony of alcoholism. Uh, it does affect the family. This poor girl didn't know how bad off I was, and uh, because of the embarrassment it would bring in the community because I was a high school coach, we lived together for about a year and a half. But yet, I'm the community drunk now, and everybody knows it except she and I. And sure enough, it wasn't long before I uh, had to leave this particular job, they gave me a chance to resign. My drinking got into, I had more problems. As a matter of fact, I got a sabbatical leave at one time to, when I came along, uh, there were no such thing as treatment centers. There were what they call drying out places where they'd send you. My mother was able to send me some of the best ones up and down the East Coast. And I'd go to these places to, uh, as they say, taper off. Now I don't know if you ever taper off. Or not I enjoyed tapering off. Uh, you just sip and sip and sip and taper off. <laughs> and uh, and I'd get. Uh, I usually came back worse condition than when I went. And uh, <laughs> and my mother uh, found that I went to four of them in a period of about six months that I can recall. And uh, it was big money. And sure enough, uh, a little bit later on at this particular school, I was asked to. Re- to resign because of uh, my behavior, my drinking, and uh, and I'd got in trouble with a girls' basketball team. Uh, I'd been coaching boys for several years, and the girls' coach had to go into service in the middle of the year, and they asked me, now, I'm going to these ball games half you know, half, I was loose, you know what I mean, I wasn't just moving good, <laughs> and wasn't drunk, but, you know, good movement, and real loose is what it was, and uh, <laughs> drinking vodka, you know, it leaves you breathless, and... Uh, and I was going to these ball games half juiced up, and uh, and this particular first game with the girls, I had them in the huddle before the tip off, and you know I started the boys. I'd been hitting them on the rear. Well, I started hitting the girls on the rear, and God, pandemonium broke out. Some parents come down out of the stands, and and hell, I didn't know what I'd done. I really didn't, and uh, and uh, needless to say, the school board met the next morning, and uh, and they made some arrangements for me, really, and well. At that time, I moved further east. In my home state, you keep moving east, and there's nowhere to go. And that's what finally happened. I moved to another school. There was a rock bottom of schools. I was there for a reason, you know, to see that it was accredited. And sure enough, I was able to last after six and a half months. The only way that I can describe my drinking at that time is I had to get up four or five o'clock in the morning. I had it then to drink enough booze to stop shaking, so I could. Uh, get in that shower and shave and get my clothes on and, and start school was a rural consolidated school and I had to drive about 12 miles. I knew what was going to happen about noon. The shakes would start again and I'd have some hit in the gym nation my automobile where I could take a few drinks to stop shakes to pray for the three o'clock get back in the automobile and go back to town again and do the same thing over day in and day out. This went on for six and a half months and one day his wife had already left, that I'd married shortly. One day, the principal just stopped me in the hall. Just stopped me and said, we don't need you anymore. We don't need you anymore. We didn't have a conference about it. He didn't call me in and sit down and talk about this thing. He said, we, don't, we just don't need I didn't even cry, and that's unusual at that time. <laughs> and like Hank said last night, uh, talking about this invisible line, I look back now. I look back now on my alcoholism, and I really believe, as far as I know today, and this is all hindsight, at this time I had crossed that invisible line that I'd become an alcoholic although I didn't know it, because I'd gotten to the point I'd take one drink, and I could no longer guarantee you my behavior, and to me that's what an alcoholic is, one drink and I could no longer guarantee you my behavior. I left school that day when I was fired, and uh, and I'd experienced blackouts before, never no prolonged blackout. Woke up in jail for the first time in my life two and a half weeks later. Came to, bandages all over me. And a man began to talk to me through a cell door. And I later found out he was a county health doctor. And he said, that your mother's come down here and straighten out all this mess. And yeah, we're going to send you a place where they can cure you. Now, I didn't I didn't comprehend what he really meant I, when he said we're going I was glad to see Mother again because Mother had been straightening up my messes for a long, long time, big messes. And when he said, we're going to send you a place where they can cure you, I hadn't eaten much, and uh, I just thought I was going back to one of those places where I could sit on a lawn chair on some soft green grass under an umbrella and sip some and taper off. That's where I thought I was going. I really did. And that's not the way I went. I was 27 years of age, and uh, and the state insane asylum in North Carolina is called Dick's Hill. I too found my thrill on Dick's Hill. That's where I went. Uh, <laughs> 27 years of age, close to 28, and, uh, and I never want to forget it as long as I live. My first trip to Dick's Hill, uh, <laughs> the first few days they put me in what they call the inebriate ward. I didn't know what it meant, but it sounded pretty good. Uh, and, and I adjusted that environment because in the first few weeks I was in a, in a ward with uh, people that they chase squirrels most of the time. Uh, they'd run up and down the walls, under the chairs, under the beds, and well, hell, uh, if you're in Rome, you do as the right. I started chasing squirrels too, and I uh, never caught any, but I got close a couple of times. And, uh, <laughs> and after a few days, uh, I began to have some physical problems and uh, what it was, DTs, hallucinations, and uh, they carried me down in another building called the Old Edgston Building. I'll never forget as long as I live, and uh, down in a padded cell in the basement. And they took my clothes away from me and let me have my running fits. And days later, about 20 days later, when I got through having my running fits, they gave my clothes back to me. And then I was allowed to do the only thing I could do for the next 30-some-odd days. That was walk up and down a corridor, day in and day out, wondering what in the hell I was doing there, because there was nobody there my age. The men were a lot older. That was a cure for alcoholism in the state of North Carolina in the 50s. Lock them up, and maybe they'll live, and maybe they'll die. And I never want to forget it. I, uh, one night in this uh, particular place, uh, a group of men were playing. The men were a lot older. I was the only young person in this ward, and uh, they were playing poker, and they were using matchsticks for chips. I never forgot. And they began to discuss the reason they were there. And one fellow spoke up and says, I'm here because my wife wants to get rid of me. And I kind of identified with that. I, I thought my mother really wanted to get rid of me. My mother didn't want to get rid of me. She'd done everything she knew to do. And this was the last resort. And then I heard a man speak up, and I can see his face to, today, this morning, just as plain as it was 40-some years ago. And this man spoke up and said, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. And, of course, the thing that jumped in my mind was my father. And it was from that day on I began to compare my father's drinking with mine and, uh, it was a game I was to play until I got an alcoholic anonymous, and the truth is really known today. My father was a much better man than I ever hoped to be in his drinking. He never got kicked out of his profession. He lost a family, but uh, I lost everything I'd ever accumulated. The day came I had to leave Dixiel. I didn't have anywhere to go. I'd lost everything I'd accumulated since I'd finished college. The cars, the home, the bank accounts, the wife, the whole works. I was all gone. And what do you do? You go back home. That's all you can do. And I went back home to my mother, 28 years of age now. And my mother took me in, and my family doctor didn't know anything about alcoholism. He was uh, concerned about my nerves. And I don't know a thing about drugs, but I do know something about tablets. And the good doctor gave me some tablets to take. And I didn't have to worry about drinking for several weeks as long as I took these tablets. And uh, I was running around in a crowd at night that... uh, I'd been in school with, and they were drinking, and I was taking my medicine. And uh, I was usually in worse shape than they were. And one night, after nine weeks, I decided I'd take a drink. And the procession, the the progression that we speak of, the compulsion, as I know it today, began to work in my life, and I took one drink, and I had to have another one. In two days, I was back in this place that said I'd never go again as long as I live, Dix Hill. Back in Dix Hill again. And to make a long story short, I went back to Dick's Hill five times in six months on account of one fact I'd become an alcoholic, and I didn't know it. Now, I'll have to be honest with you. There were times back when I was drinking, I used to... It was always when I was down and out, and I had to bargain with somebody to get something. I'd take a little look at myself. Maybe it's the wine, maybe it's the beer, maybe it's the people. But invariably, invariably, as I began to get my health back, the liar in me would revive again, and I'd become that same person I'd always been. I didn't know what truth was. I could honestly deceive myself and that's sickness at its worst. The last time I went back to Dix Hill, they put me in the nut part of the bug house instead of the drying out part. And there's a distinct difference. And this is when I found out about being strapped down in the bed in a straitjacket and how you live better electrically, I found out about that too. And and I never want to forget it then. And I look back now in the sobriety, and, and, and it seems like a dream sometimes. But it really happened to me. It really happened to me. We have a, it's a word in, well, it's, it's in everybody's vocabulary, but you hear it a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous, this word co- coincidence. A lot of coincidences happened before I ever got to Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of coincidences happened after I got sober. But a coincidence happened one day when I was in that nut ward One day they came over and got me and carried me back and put me over there with the rest of the rummies in the old Edston building, and I don't know why, and I've never questioned it. I accept it. But uh, I'd been there so much that more or less made me an honorary attendant. I worked in the cafeteria, I worked in the kitchen, go get mail and things like that, and uh, one day uh, two other fellows and myself decided we'd—I don't want to sound dramatic, but we decided we'd escape. back then it was uh all oh, that high fence and all that stuff barbed wire and i don't know how we did it but we got over it today they turn them loose they let them go anywhere they want to go and, uh, but we, we ran away from that place that afternoon and escaped it was down in downtown raleigh in a hotel that afternoon got hold of a jug and we were drinking watching the six o'clock news and it came on and uh and it was a tv and uh black and white then by the way and 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 the guy said the three criminal insane had just escaped from dick's hill and uh one of the fellows spoke up and said, "Wonder who the hell it is?" And, uh, and about that time they started flashing those uh, pictures you know of the three inmates that had been there and And God, one guy started crying and ran like hell. He just took off, and uh, I kind of laughed a little, and the other fellow myself said, "Well, if we're gangsters, I guess we'd better split up." So we split up that day and and uh, I kind of hid out the next morning. Uh, the other fellow and I parted our ways, and I was on the streets in Raleigh, and ran into a friend of my mother's, that had known my condition for years, and put me in a, on a bus and sent me back to my hometown down northeastern North Carolina. Broke into my mother's home uh, on the right side of town and all that, and uh, announced to me she'd been in Richmond. She was in Richmond at that time with a nervous breakdown, and they found me three days later, three or four days later, uh, when they brought her home and found me, I was drunked up, and finally got, uh, got stuff out of my system a little uh, for them to talk to me and uh, it was about two days later they got together and I don't know if you know who they are or not but uh, they are those loved ones that uh, get in one room, crack the door put you in the other and they began to talk about how much they love you but what they got to do and, uh, and the end result was when I came in and them they at that time was my two sisters and my mother and a friend of the family was like a father to me and uh, the end result of their conversation, one of them came in to me and they said, Well, you're killing mother, and we want you to leave this part of the country. We think it would be best for her and best for you. And uh, they gave me a lot of money. They really meant for me to leave. They really did. And uh, when I saw that green, you know, I began to think it was a good idea, too. Uh, <laughs> uh, Practicing now, alcoholic gets green on his hip, and things begin to... That was my problem back then. You know, I didn't have money and money. And... Uh, and they, I could have gone to the West Coast and lived comfortably for a period of time. And uh, I went four miles to a neighboring town, pulled into an old hotel, the old Weldon Hotel, and uh, had a lot of friends there for a while. And, uh, of course, what happened later on, a few months later, the money gave out, and uh, and then I reverted back to the thing that I'd always done if I needed money. I'd just write checks. And I wrote a check. I went over to my hometown one day, and uh A friend of the family in business. I I bought an outboard motor, but I didn't have a boat. But I bought a motor. (laughs) You know, write a big check, pick up change, get the motor later, and sure enough, a few days later, the well, two days later, they called my mother to tell her that my motor was ready. And my mother put two and two together, and that afternoon, John Law was there and carried me back to my hometown and put me in jail, and uh, where I was raised, three blocks from my mother's home was city city hall, and. And I was in that drunk tank for about a week, and uh, every morning all I'm left except me. And I began to raise hell down there one night and told the jailer I wanted to see my attorney. And he said, who is your attorney? I told him who it was. It's to talk to him all you want to. the next cell block. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, he was. And, uh, and coincidence, maybe this man later became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was a member of our state legislature, and he died sober of it. He sure couldn't help me that night. And, and a couple of days later, they I, I, st- I had to go upstairs and stand in trial for something I didn't know I'd done on a previous drunk. The uh, prosecuting attorney was my mother's next-door neighbor, and he didn't seem to know who I was. And uh, nobody seemed to know who I was. And that afternoon, I left that court, and then the next day was tried on another court for the same thing, something I didn't know I'd done on a previous drunk. And two days later, I was in uh, part of our country called the Great Dismal Swamp on a chain game. Now, this is what happened to me on account of alcoholism. And yet I'm not, you know, I, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And I went to this place, and I worked hard, and I never worked in my life. I got my smoke in the back and the soda pop by writing letters. I was the only man there with the education. And they gave me a name. They called me the paper hanger, you know, writing those checks. And uh, the day came that I had to leave uh, um, nobody in the family had have anything to do with me. But they carry you back to your hometown, and uh, that's what they did with me and put me out, city streets, city limits. And I went back to the same place I'd always gone for help, back to my mother. And uh, my mother, again, this time I went to the back door instead of the front door, for some strange reason. I guess I was second class, and my mother began to talk to me, and she let me in, and I uh, began to feed me, and uh, and they got together again, and they got to argue. My brother-in-law came over this time, and, well, I won't get into that, but anyway, <laughs> uh, they got together, and I heard my mother say, he stays here tonight, whether you like it or not, that's my son. And uh, that was when in my in my life, uh, in my time in drinking, there was the time that I said, I'll I, Sobriety, no. I didn't know what the word was. I just wouldn't drink anymore for her, and I don't recommend this before alcoholics anonymous after. And I didn't for four months. One day, it was suggested maybe I should go to work. It had been a while, and I didn't think I'd get a job coaching the state of North Carolina before it had happened. So, it the agency up in Virginia. I was interviewed in uh, two, different, three different states in a period of one week. My mother carried me to these places, and one afternoon we wound up in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, A man began to talk to me, and uh, he was the superintendent of city schools in that city. And uh, I uh, told him about myself, and I didn't tell him anything about my past. And he said, well, I need some references. I'd like to get on the telephone and call these people now because we need to do something pretty quick because school opens in two weeks. And I gave him some references, and he left and went into another office. And I told my mother, my mother was sitting right right with me. I said, it's all over now. And sure enough, in about 20 or 30 minutes, he came back and said, Son, we understand you had a problem with drinking one time, but you're cured now. And I said, Yes, sir, I haven't drank in a long time. I'm doing all right. He said, We want you to go to work. This was the largest high school in southwest Virginia at that time, Thomas Jefferson Senior High School in Roanoke, Virginia. And I had a chance to start a new life in spite of where I'd been, a new life. My mother financed it. I had a place to go when I came back a few days later. New clothes, new bankroll, uh, just a new start in life. And on the way back to Roanoke, I had to change buses up in Richmond, Virginia. Had a little layover. And I thought I'd have one drink. But I uh, bought two pints. You know how we are. We <laughs> we add and subtract rather peculiar. And this was the beginning of my last drunk, the drunk that got me here. The only drunk that I like to talk about, the drunk that got me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Lasted about 24 days, I was told. And what happened to me? I was able to work for one week. I didn't go to the place I was supposed to go where I was supposed to live. I checked into the big hotel on the hill and started doing those things I'd always done, writing big, bad checks and getting in a lot of trouble. middle way this drunk, my mother got in touch with me through the general manager of that hotel and gave me the greatest gift she's ever given me since the day I was born. And that's when she kicked me out of her life, and I knew she meant it. I knew she meant it. And two days later, I was kicked out of that hotel. And... Uh, What happened then is I I was on the streets in Roanoke, Virginia, doing the best I could and wound up on Skid Row in Roanoke. On Sunday morning, September 11, 1957, I was in a back alley in downtown Roanoke trying to get a drink of liquor down, and for some reason or another that morning, I don't know about you, but I know when my moment of truth came, that morning I was in that back alley and it. It dawned on me, but, my God, I was killing myself from what I was doing. I was going to die in that back alley. And I don't know why. I don't know why to this day, but I had enough self-respect that I didn't want to die in that back alley. I didn't take the drink. I just cried out for some help. And sure enough, maybe it was a coincidence, I don't know. But the only man that really knew me in that city on a first-name basis found me that morning. He had been looking for me for several days. That was the superintendent of schools. He didn't know anything about AA. He didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. He just wanted to help a human being. That's all it was. And he had talked to my mother, and he found out it wasn't no use. And he took me to his home that afternoon in the prominent section of Roanoke, Virginia, and got in touch with a man that knew a man in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was carried to Alcoholics Anonymous that afternoon on September eleventh, nineteen 1957. And my sobriety date is September 12th. I had a sponsor that says, you don't count it till you've been one day sober. So that's the way it was for me. Now, I'd heard of Alcoholics Anonymous two times before. The first time was when I was in Dick's Hill. Uh, on Sunday afternoon, some fellows in Raleigh used to come over every after Sunday afternoon and put on an AA meeting. And they'd say, AA is here, everybody in the room, and I'd go with them, and I'd get in the back of the room, and raise hell while the guy was up there telling this story. Drink the coffee and eat the donuts, make fun of them. And you know, I was about several years sober until I realized one day that my God, every Sunday afternoon they left. But I had to stay. Uh, we'd catch on kind of slow. That was the first time I heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. The second time when I got off the chain gang in my hometown, my mother had made arrangements with a fellow in the old time in my hometown to carry me down to Rich Square. Down in Rich Square was a small community in northeastern North Carolina. To talk to Vernon Strickland. Vernon Strickland was a successful attorney. He had lost his practice and sober, and, and uh, Vernon had about two years to And came back to Eastern North Carolina to start the Fresh Group in Eastern North Carolina. And uh, they carried me down there to talk to Vernon one night. Uh, and that man took the time to sit down and talk to me and tell me about alcoholics anonymous. And, and I told him I was too young to be an alcoholic. And uh, and yet my brain had been about pickled by then, and but I was too young to be an alcoholic. And I never forgot what Vernon told me. His son said, I'll tell you what. He said, you keep drinking and be patient, and you'll find out if you're an alcoholic. And sure enough, about a year and a half later, I was an alcoholic. Since. But that day I got to AA for the first time. They carried that man, met this man, and carried me to what was known as the Easy Does It Club, a 12-step clubhouse in Roanoke, Virginia. I'd gotten to the point that I... I my hair hurt. My toenails hurt. I was tired of, you know, tired of the high cost of low living, and that's what it is. And they cur- I, wasn't, I wasn't drunk, but I was, I was just immobile. I, I, the only way I could see was straight ahead, no peripheral vision. And uh, they carried me up those steps physically. And uh, as we got up there, we began to talk to some fellows, talk to them. And there was an the old gentleman standing in the right-hand corner. Never got behind a podium, I don't mention this man, his name is Old Man John, that's what we call him. And this old man wiggled his hand, I went over there, and, and he put his arm around my shoulder, I've never forgotten. Him. And he said, sons, all you've got to do is listen to these people, and you never have to be alone again. Listen to these people, and you never have to be alone again. And what Old Man John was telling me then is, that it was just, just like was read in the first few lines of chapter five, rather, a while ago. Uh, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. That's what he was telling me. And old man John rang my bell. Old man John come to Alcoholics Anonymous when he was 76 years old. He died at 82, I helped bury him, but he rang my bell. He told me that I didn't have to go back out there anymore if I got to do what you, If I could do what you told me to do. And sure enough, I began to shake a little and I said something about a, they began to talk to me a little and I said something about a drink. And they said, no, we don't do it that way. And then they said something about some tablets, and I thought it started a revolution when I mentioned that. And then they said, drink the coffee, drink the coffee. And uh, what I'm about to say is no reflection of who made the coffee today. But I've always said, and I still contend with all my heart, there's a lot of people in alcoholics and making coffee that don't have any damn business doing it. And and that was one of those days. It was that ropey stuff. It just hung. And I thought you had to drink it. I sat there and drank coffee all the afternoon, got sick from it, threw up coffee all the afternoon, and they carried me to my first meeting that night. I don't know what went on, but I remember sitting on my hands, And but I do remember after the meeting when strangers, complete strangers, walked up to me and, and told me the magic words of Alcoholics Anonymous, we love you and we understand you're going to be all right. Nobody asked me where I came from, what I had. Just you, we love you, and we understand. And that night, it was proved to me I didn't have to be alone anymore. I'll tell you how I got sober. I got sober with three members of Alcoholics Anonymous getting me a room at the YMCA and sitting with me all night long and talking to me and telling me I can make it another minute and I can make it another hour. And finally the sun came up, and old Claude, he's dead and gone now, spoke up, the first time I ever heard it, he said, Dave said, maybe you can make it today. That's all we do is we try to just try to do it a day at a time. And I'll never forget it because it was that moment in my life that somehow or another, I really believe, I think I began to believe right then that I could make it that day. I could make it that day. But for some reason or another, I had to be around them to do it. And that's the way I feel about it today. I still got to be around you today. And uh, later on that morning, I uh, met the man who had become my first sponsor. I didn't ask for him. He appointed himself, and I've never forgotten that. Uh, and he asked me a lot of questions, and, I, and uh, you know, I lied a little, and he told me to stop lying. And, uh, and finally we got down to the nitty-gritty. You know, it's amazing how we lie. And, and uh, I uh, I'll never want to forget my first year in Alcoholics Anonymous as long as I live. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, what I had in my earthly possessions was the clothes I had on and a paper bag that had a ear syringe, a razor, and ten pennies to my name, and a toothbrush. That's all I had when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous. And that day, that man uh, got a place for me to stay in a boarding house with uh, five other men that uh, were at this boarding house. None of us had a job. Each one of us had a room. and. I don't know where the money or the clothes came from my first few months in AA, and those six men, those five men that I lived with, uh, gave me much. Uh, I, uh, out of us six people, there's two I was sober today, and uh, three on my dead, and one still drinking, he calls me every Christmas, collect, and uh, wants to know where I could make it and he couldn't, and this has been over oh, forty years ago and uh, the sickness of alcoholism, and I'll never forget those men. I uh, got in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and I had good sponsorship. I've always had good sponsorship. I've always said if uh, anybody I work with get half of what I got, they're going to make it because I got the whole load. I'm working on my fifth sponsor. (laughs) My four sponsors have died, and uh, I didn't kill them, by the way. Uh, uh, The last one I have is... uh, the one I have now is a man that I sponsor. He's been sober 39 years, and, uh, and we've been friends, and I had to do something. I just believe in having a sponsor, and, and that's a little better. But uh, I uh, got involved in AA, and I began to, in that boarding house, uh, I've always said I le- I've learned much more from people with less education than I. The man that solved my prominent problem had a third-grade education. Now, prior to this, I'd met my former wife, Sue. Uh, after I got sober, she'd never seen me take a drink and never seen me drunk. And she said she was doing her social work. And she, uh, she lived with me 30-some years, 30-some uh, years of my sobriety. And uh, she, gives, she should be given a lot of credit because this was a gift from God, this woman. And uh, I, uh, was, they had a conscious room in that group. Uh, I, I call it inventory room. That's what it was. They'd, hell, they'd call you in and sit you down and say, we want to take your inventory, sit down. And that's what they'd do. I mean, it was uncontested. You just sat down and, uh, and, they'd say, and they'd point the finger at you. They called me in there one day to take my, talk about my employment problem. And uh, like I said, uh, the man that solved my employment problem had a third-grade education. name was Red. He was a sign painter. And they began to discuss various things. And then Red spoke up and said, Dave, it seems to me that if you studied engineering in college, that's what you ought to be doing in life. Well, hell, nobody ever explained to me that way before, and so through Red's advice, uh, I was uh, went over to Salem, Virginia, a neighboring town, was interviewed for Virginia Highway Department, and uh, A. had told me, uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous told me, he said, "Tell the truth," and by God, when you tell the truth, they sit there in complete amazement. <laughs> and uh, I told the truth, and the man said, "We want to hire you. We want to hire you." When, this was the second week in December, in '57. And says, when can you go to work? (laughs) I was scared to death. I said, well, I've got a lot of business to tend to. It'll be about the 1st of February. he said, well, you come on back here the 1st of February. Well, Sue and Red were out in the car. They carried me over there for this interview. And so I went back out the car. They were outside. How did it go? Fine. I got the job. Well, when do you go to work? I told them what happened. They carried my ass right back in. I went to work that afternoon. And, And I worked... Well i retired uh, <laughs> uh yeah, they moved fast back there in that group. let me tell you and uh oh I learned a lot and I went ahead and, and got to, you know, i was scared and i was got a lot of promotions and so forth and uh, it led to a lot of advancements and had good help and uh, and then uh you know I got involved in the group and uh, i i was you know i was Got to know something after about nine months. You know, Stock raving sober and running around quoting the book and the steps and everything. Anybody listened to me? And and finally let me talk one night, and uh, the steering committee had to meet on that. Uh, it looked like I was a gamble behind the podium, I reckon. But anyway, one of the fellows that at that house where we were, at the house where I stayed, he would got, took sick, got puny, he got drunk is what it was. And the other fellows brought him to the meeting to... Uh, And I don't know, I was getting ready to talk, and just somehow in my mind, well, what I should do is talk to him. And, you know, I give a talk on how not to slip. Never heard of one, but I started one, and I'd been talking about five minutes. I heard somebody say, sit down. And when you start raving sober, you don't hear them say sit down. And I kept on going, and in a minute, he said, sit down. It was my sponsor. And I didn't sit down, and finally he come to the podium and got me. (laughs) and carried me down the aisle there and, and as I was walking down the aisle uh, everybody's eyes were big you know, never seen anything like this and the thought went in my mind was my God, I got too much power for him tonight and he don't want me to overdo it that's all it is and, and you can begin to understand how sick I was getting I was, uh, I was running around in a crowd then in AA that were telling me to take what I needed and throw the rest away I had the first step and that was about it and then one night, one night, thank God the old-timers in that group called me in that concert room and set me down, and, and they really took my inventory and told me that unless I uh, got a hold of these steps and got honest with myself that I was going to get drunk. And this is a hell of a thing to tell the backbone of the group they're just going to get drunk, but that's what they told me. And I got mad, and, and I got ready to tear out that room and uh, got to the door. And my sponsor spoke and says, I want to ask you one question before you leave. And the question was this. When was the last time you thank God for a day of sobriety? And I left and went back to that boarding house. Uh, God to me at that time was a question mark in the sky. Maybe yes, maybe no. And I got back in that room, and, and I wanted to do something to him. You know how we are. The I, I thought of taking a drink didn't occur to me, I'll be honest. But I wanted to do something to him and to that whole group that took my inventory. You know, twist something or do something, or hit them up. <laughs> so I sat down and wrote a written resignation to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, <laughs> and uh, thank God, as I was involved in this composition, uh, I, I began to hear his voice. It was an echo. When was the last time you thank God for a day of sobriety? And it became louder and louder and louder. And I was forced to my knees. To pray to a God I really didn't know anything about at that time. And as a result of that juvenile prayer, I was able to walk into a bathroom and look at myself for the first time in my adult life, eyeball to eyeball, and know what I really was, that I was just a speck on this universe, and someday I'd die and soon be forgotten. And the only way I had to go was through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I tried everything. And so the next night, uh, I went back and I rejoined Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and I do it every year. I have a birthday. I rejoin. And I'm still here. And, and I got involved with the steps and did what my sponsor said. And then I was approaching two years sobriety. And uh, in order to through, I had to move back to North Carolina. and went to work for the North Carolina Highway Department uh, as an engineer and and my sponsor, my first sponsor, made arrangements for another man to take me over when I got to Raleigh, and, and I was very fortunate to have him, my second sponsor, one of the early members of Alcoholics Anonymous in New York City. He had married a lady in Raleigh, and uh, and God, uh, he was the man to ram the big book down my throat. Because after I moved to Raleigh, I'd, I'd ask people questions and let them know how smart I was, and uh, and Tom would say, "Read the book, read the book." He got me interested in service work. And it was through Tom and his connections, I traveled with him all over the country when. I was just a young A.A. and uh, he was speaking all over the country. And that's how I got to meet G.O. staff, G.S.O. staff members, and later how I got to meet Bill was on account of Tom. And uh, I look back man, I was one of the fortunate ones, really. And he gave me a great lesson about standing behind one of these things. Uh, I had, uh, <laughs> I had uh, been speaking off my mouth right much, and he put a moratorium on my speaking. Uh, Called me in one night in a conference room. They had a conference room too, and uh, I'd been going to a few of these deals like this and this retreats and watching these jokers talk, and everybody clapped and they kissed them, and hugged them, and all that stuff, and kind of appealed to me. And so, one night I told Tom I'd like to talk to him after the meeting. We went in this little conference room. He was one of these made you sit down, and he stood up and talked down at you. And uh, he said, "What's the problem?" I, I said, "Tom, I think I'm a convention speaker." Well, I can't repeat what he said from the podium, but I'll tell you this. Uh, he put a, he said, from now on, the, 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 this was it. He said, from now on, you don't even speak at a meeting. You can sit in the discussion meeting and talk on a topic, but no more behind the podium telling your story. Two years this went on. One day he called me, said, come over to the house, I want to talk to you. Well, you know, what have I done now? So I go over there, and uh, we get into his den. I sit down, he stands up and starts talking to me. And he said, Dave says, uh, you're going down you're going down to Columbia, South Carolina to talk at the state convention. And here's what you do. You told me all these things I had to do. Before you go, there's something I want to tell you. They asked me to go first, I can't go. You're going as a damn substitute, and don't you ever forget it as long as you live. <laughs> and uh and I'm sure I'm a substitute this morning. Now that's the way I feel about it. Uh and that's what really what it's all about. But uh he was a great man he died in 64 with a lot of sobriety and, and then a man sponsored me some of you uh, Willett from Greensboro and uh, right on down the line until where I am today so I've been blessed with sponsorship and got involved in service and I've been in Raleigh ever since and I don't know It might be somebody here today that uh, was like I was when I first got here uh, you'll begin to wonder about this thing will it is it real will it work for you I uh I really believe the core and guts of this whole program is based on the truth. I'm More briefly, you've got to be honest with yourself, because I had to get honest with myself to I got sober. I heard a man say an alcoholic's Anonymous many years ago. I don't know who it was, but in my early sobriety. And he said when Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth in the body of a man, he didn't say, I'm a truthful man. He said, I am the truth. I believe, I really believe, it's from this source and this root that we inherited alcoholics Anonymous. Because I've come to believe, not only believe, but to know that there is a power behind this universe that stands ready to help you and I. I don't care where you come from, what your economic condition is, or what color your skin is. If you have the capacity to be honest with yourself, this power will help you. I really believe it with all my heart. And way back yonder, I used to call it the man of stars. And today as I stand before you, I call it the God of my understanding, the God that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, the God that I found by you through your love for me, and has never let me down. uh, I've had a lot of good things that happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had a lot of sad things, some things that uh, they told me would be forthcoming, uh, uh, deaths and so forth. And uh, through the program I had this help. Now, one of the great things that happened to me is uh, nine and a half years of sobriety before my mother would ever have anything to do with me on a really a Sunday basis. Nine and a half years. I used to worry a lot about it, and my mother would, my friends would say, uh, my response particular said, you just be patient. And say, It'll come to pass, you just got to hang on. And sure enough, it happened after nine and a half years. And, uh, and my mother was one of the greatest friends of alcoholics, and she lived, she lived to see me sober for 32 years, Now thank God for that. She was a great woman, a great friend of A.A. And uh, then Sue, my wife, I lost her some time ago, and and, uh, and I don't know. Uh, I've always said God closes doors and He opens doors. And uh, I met a lady that i would known for several. Well, I i known her for several years up in another state, with Richmond, Virginia, where we'd seen her at retreats and. Uh, and we started seeing each other. And uh, she's a member going 18 years. And we were married about two years ago. So uh, my life has been, uh, I don't know how my life could be any richer than it is. Uh, I'm surrounded with uh, people that are in alcoholics among us. My, my whole life is devoted to AA. And that's all I know. I retired in 1990. And, uh, and like we were talking, me and Hank, I don't know when I had time to work. That's the truth. I look back and, uh, but you know. There's still certain things I have to do uh, since I've been sober and, and, and I'd like to tell you briefly about those. The first thing I have to do, I have to continue to work at this thing. Uh, you know, when I came to you, I told you that I was willing to go any length to get this program. Any length. I was willing to do anything. And sometimes I, I have to remember that when the phone rings in the middle of the night, some guy or gal wants some help, and, and the thought that pops in my mind, one thing will wait till after breakfast. Those three men that night. They didn't say, we'll see you after breakfast. No, it don't work that way. It don't work that way. I have to continue to work at this thing and really want it like I've always wanted. And uh, and I I still say the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is Alcoholics Anonymous. And And the longer I stay sober, the greater it becomes. I still have to work at it, and I want my sobriety. The second thing I have to do is I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where it's at. That's where we survive among individual egos, and we share with one another. And it's the little people. There's a couple, in, well, i sponsor sponsored them, and uh, I don't know, uh, I've always said if you sponsor Vernon, Vernon and Gertrude, you either get drunk or stay sober, and I managed to stay sober. Uh, Gertrude was a former delegate, she got drunk after that. Vernon should have 40-some years of sobriety. He's working on three. But they were great people, and uh, Years ago, uh, they'd been in the program about two years and uh, they'd been married 16. And it was a Christmas Eve night. We'd had a meeting. There were just a few hours there. It was on the eighth step. I'd led the meeting and I had to carry them home because they didn't have no driver license. I'd make them call me to tell me to come and pick them up. And rather I wouldn't call them. And they kind of resented that. But eighth step, and we got in the car. I was carrying them home. And uh, Gertrude said to Vernon, I said, Vernon. When are you gonna make some amends to me? I never forgot what Vernon said. Hell, honey, you're not even on my list. They had been married 16 years, and she was—he wasn't—you know—she wasn't even on his list. These are the people that got to be. And then there's Henry, old Henry. Henry was automobile salesman uh, in my hometown. I bought three cars from him. He had problems staying sober, and uh, on one of his drunks, uh, well, we had a friend that was in the funeral. <laughs> funeral home business too and we decided we'd take old Henry and put him over down in the coffin one day maybe I'd help him so we did took him over to the funeral home locked him up in the coffin and left it open and uh, the man's name was John there was a funeral home he'd been sober about three years and Henry woke up and raised up by the coffin and saw John stand over and he said where am I? and John said Henry you're dead and Henry said well how long I've been dead and he said you've been dead five days my God. He said, well, what are you doing here? He said, I'm dead, too. How long have you been dead? He said, I've been dead nine days. Henry said, well, you ought to know where we can get a drink. Well, that's the kind of fellow he was. You don't follow it, do you? Oh, Henry wanted no know where he could get a drink, and he was dead. That's the alcoholic. The uh, third thing I have to do is I have to uh, try to work the 12 steps to the best of my ability. The 12 steps are, you know, uh, I can save you some time if you're new in the program. That's the program. I fought it for a while, but I've come to know that that is it. Work the 12 steps. And I happen to believe there's a line in my book, and your book tells me. It says, we're granted a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And through these steps that I've been able to maintain my spiritual condition and improve. And the fourth thing I have to do, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, some days I just have to hang on and do the best I can. And there have been days like that in my sobriety. They used to tell me nothing's so bad that it won't get better if you just have to hang on. And, and it's from this I feel like that yesterday is my experience and, and tomorrow is my hope. And today is going from one to the other and doing the best I can. And as long as I can walk hand in hand with you down this happy road of destiny, I too believe that I'll be allowed another day of sobriety. God, the Father of all mankind. Maybe it's a coincidence I'm here today and see some people I've known over the years. Maybe it is a coincidence. I don't know. But I simply define a coincidence as this, an act of God in the midst of time, the same God that has been doing for you and I, that which we could not do for ourselves, God, the Father of all mankind. I've been up here for a few minutes, and I'm going to close. And uh, I could have got up here and said these words in the beginning and sat down. It would have told my story and probably yours, and it's it's the most powerful thing in the book as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I used to say it with my words, and some people started asking me about it, and I had to admit it was in the book. But it is in the book, and I'd like to close with it because it means so much to me. And it goes like this. Uh, This great experience that released me from the bondage of hatred and replaced it with love It's just another affirmation of the truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous, and everything I need I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. Thank you very much.